0: But I think when we look back at our track record and our most successful companies the the one common thread is it was the right person. Um you know and and I think as a as a VC especially in a slower market or a down market you can get very caught up in the minutia of like um you know is the market big enough is that the right go to market strategy um you know is the product fully built and like um at the end of the day, we're supposed to be optimists, and so um, you know you have to come at it with a, with it a lot of a lot of optimism. So-
1: everybody welcome to another episode of the executive where we interview some of the best founders investors and operators on their life lessons and advice on how to make it at the highest level and how to take their companies uh, to the highest level we've had some incredible people on in the past between kelly hennig of stoke space who are building reusable rockets and just raised a hundred million dollar series b to yorkspaces cao monica palco who in a very short amount of time, have built a billion-dollar satellite company that is competing with all the legacy firms in that space. To Joe Musselman, who now is a VC, but prior to that took a year off to do a listening tour to to just go meet really smart people and figure out what he wanted to do next. So we're going to do that and more in this coming year. We're going to go really deep uh, into certain topics that we think people are experts in topics you know, that will include how to build a board, how to leverage your investors, how to raise capital, how to scale operations, to managing your time and having the best output possible uh, in a week, in a year. What are the strategies behind that? We're going to interview some really incredible experts, and I'm excited about today because we are starting out with a bang, With I think is one of the best, if not the best, Venture firms, uh, one of the best venture firms in New York, in Lara Hippo. And the, I think I can back it up with some of just the companies that they've invested in. I'll name a few Cotopaxi, Glossier, Casper, Allbirds, uh, Mir, you name it. They are investing in things that are all around us today. And we're going to talk about a few companies as well today that are a little bit outside of that in the drone space or satellite. And so on deck, we've got. Andrea Hippo, who is a partner at Layer Hippo uh, in New York. Andrea, so good to have you on, and thank you for taking the time.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
1: Andrew, really excited to, to talk about a lot of you know operational things for VC's and you know advice for founders as well. But let's start with a little bit about your background. You started at Thomson Reuters, maybe a less traditional path. Walk us through you know how you got into venture, uh, maybe starting from the back when you when you graduated school.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm really dating myself here, but, um, I, like you said, I, worked at Thomson Reuters um, in an entry level sales job right out of college. Really, my only requirement at that point was that someone gave me a job and they did. Um, I I was, you know, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. But in reality, I was, you know, just needed needed that first kind of step. And so um, it was a very, very corporate job. I wore a pantsuit to work every day. I walked trading floors. It was during the financial crisis. So I was trying to sell um, a tier two product to Bloomberg and honestly, sometimes uncovering that they didn't even know they were spending money with Thomson Reuters and ended up canceling um, a lot of cold calling. Um, But honestly, I think that that kind of initial like sales skills were extremely important. Um, I, I actually think that sales is like one of the most important skill sets you can have. And especially if you want to be a founder or an investor, that's it's, it, comes, it comes into play in, in both realms. And um, I also really loved the people that I worked with, which I also think make, make, make or break a job in a lot of ways, but knew it probably was not where I wanted to stay forever. Um, so started thinking about um, next steps and going to business school um, and kind of during the torturous process of taking the GMAT and, and getting my ducks in a row, got the opportunity to go over to... Um, advanced publications, which is um, probably lesser known. What's probably better known is uh, they are the owner of Condé Nast. it's a privately held company. Um, one family, the Newhouse family, owns Condé Nast, which is you know Vogue and kind of all those really iconic brands, um, as well as a lot of other traditional media assets. So they had regional newspapers, a cable MSO, um, a lot of things that you know most people don't actually know about. Um, and at the time, um, you know, obviously they knew that there was kind of a digital transformation happening in media and beyond, and they wanted more exposure to that in their portfolio. So they had started a four hundred million dollar fund fund. Um, the idea is it would be for um and a as well as um, um, VC investments um, and kind of like different strategic relationships. Um, so I was um, the second hire, um, there was an SVP in me. So I was doing everything from making coffee to writing investment memos for looking for new companies. Um, and that was really like my first taste of kind of the the tech founder startup world. And I was just completely in love. Um, you know, first of all, you didn't have to wear a pantsuit, um, which was a huge <laughs> <plus>. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, usually but most importantly, um, you know, these were people that were really passionate about what they were doing. Um and, you know, I had never seen that kind of divide like that, I guess it's not a divide, the lack of divide between work, and life, because I would, I came from a job where you clocked it and you clocked out. And when you clocked out, you were done. Um, so really passionate people that were, you know, really had big ambitions to change the world. Um, and so when I did eventually go to business school, kind of knew I wanted to stay um, in the startup ecosystem in some capacity. And so um, during business school, I worked at a company that was called BarkBox at the time. Now it's called Bark & Co. Um, and I think I was like, you know, very, very early there as an MBA intern um, and ended up staying on my whole second year as a GM for a new business line that they were trying to start. But saw that company go from, you know, like 10 people in a one office, one room office in Chinatown to, you know, 70 plus people had raised their series A going out of their series B. Um, and it was just really exciting. I'm also a big animal lover, so it, it worked well with kind of what I loved. Um, and when I graduated from business school, I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Um, and at Lear Hippo, they had just raised their fourth fund. We're now investing out of our eighth fund. Um, and they were able to hire and bring someone on. Uh, you know, candidly, my dad is a, a GP here, so I got my foot in the door door that way. Um, did you cold but, call him, you know,
1: or I, how did that work out? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: Um, but you know, I, I actually didn't think I would stay here for as long as I have, or in, intend to stay. You know, I really loved being on the startup side. I knew I probably you know wasn't going to be a founder myself, but loved being part of that kind of very very early stage culture. Um, but that was a decade ago, so I don't I don't really think that's happening at this point um but you know I, I I get to do like kind of all the best parts of of being an operator which is like working with founders and you know kind of applying you know different things I've learned along my career and from working with different companies um, and so I get to kind of live and breathe it every day just in a different way
1: what was that conversation like with your dad was it I want to come work at the firm and get some experience for a couple of years? Or is he, you know, coming to grab you and saying, you've got to work here for a couple of years? You know, what was, what was that like?
0: yeah it was a very natural evolution. So my my dad's been a bit of venture capitalist for as long as I can remember. and um, I was actually trained as a child when someone asked <laughs> me like what does your dad do to say venture capitalist? but I had no I honestly had no idea what it actually meant I think until I start really until I started doing the job. Um, and it was it was much more you know natural evolution. It was like a you know, I had been at a portfolio company. I was kind of, you know, ingrained in that in that sort of way. Um, And yeah, it was like a come come. We're hiring. You have the right profile. uh, We think it's a great fit. You know, there was no like, okay, now you know it's your turn. You have to take over the like legacy. There was none of that. It was like let's just do this and see how it goes. And and that and you know that's kind of progressed progressed. And there I started as uh, associate just like any other kind of post MBA. And then obviously I'm a partner now, but, um, but that's been over a 10 year span.
1: It's funny that you say that you were trained to say your you know, your dad is a venture capitalist where one of my uh, friends, very successful entrepreneur, his son was asked, what does your dad do? And he's like, he takes phone calls. That's what he does. (laughs) It is, you know, obviously he's like, maybe I need to be, you know, take a little few less phone calls, but that's funny. That's what my kid thinks I do. That's, that's it.
0: Yeah. right i know i know i know i I have kids now and i'm like i can only imagine what they what they think i do
1: (laughs) i think the first thing my daughter did was grab something and put it to her ear so it's trying to be better of a little separation
0: yeah yeah it's hard though especially during the pandemic when we were all doing it from home
1: right they saw it constantly or you know now as you know in a partner role uh, that you're in now wh- what are you mostly focused on what do, kind of define that role that you you know you see it as
0: yeah so um the the job is like probably 50-50 the the percentage kind of skews one way or the other depending on on the time um sourcing new investments and making new investments and then working with with portfolio companies um you know i think probably as you evolve your career and venture Um, You know, you probably start it it also depends where you are. You know, if you go to like um, one of the later stage funds, you know, you probably are only starting really with diligence work. Um, But, um, you know, the way it works here at Lear Hippo is like, you know, you kind of are focused more on sourcing um higher quantity of companies like as a an analyst and associate and then the role kind of evolves to be more portfolio support but sourcing and doing investments obviously that's that's what we do so that's a that's a big part part of the job um but also weighing that with portfolio support
1: it turns more into portfolio support is that because you have just more experience in that and you can offer more yeah offer more value
0: exactly exactly Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have more experience, you've seen more reps. I mean, really, VC is like a rep game at at the early stage. So uh, I really think it takes at least a year, probably more like two years to hone your filter, which means like, you have to drink from the fire hose at the beginning, and you need to meet with as many companies and as many founders as possible. And then over time, you learn like, okay, what, what makes an interesting company, what makes an interesting founder. And then obviously, you also have to put that through the lens of the firm that you're at, because, you know, a great deal for Layer Hippo is not necessarily a great deal for another firm. Um, so I that's really a, and at the same time, also, you're doing network building. Um, so, you know, you need to build your own proprietary network where you're going to source deals from. So that I would say is like, I mean, it's something we're all always working on, but it really, when you start your career, that's where you're going to be spending most of your time. And that can take like, you know, probably one to three years to to kind of fully form.
1: And you talked about you've built a filter. What is your filter? I don't know how much in depth you can go on it, but what what's become kind of your matrix as you meet companies?
0: Yeah, so you know, the, the job is both art and science. Um, and I think the art piece at our stage, which is seed stage, pre-seed and seed, so that's very early stage companies, um, you, is more art. And and what I mean by that is like, at the end of the day, we're investing really in in a person or a team of people. Um, and I, can, I really know in the first I'll say two minutes, but yeah. probably more like thirty it's seconds to be honest. Um, I get like a gut—I get like a gut sense on a person. I'm sure that exists across the board in, in different careers. But um, and then obviously you can be swayed one way or the other. Something can get something can become more interesting as a meeting goes on, or something can become less interesting as a meeting goes on. But like that first reaction, gut feeling about someone, I think is like so—that's so important. Um, and I think that's a lot where your filter honing comes in, and that's something that you can't like read in a textbook and learn about or watch a bunch of YouTube videos and learn like that is like on the ground boots on the ground meeting people talking to them like really and, and it's different for each person right like what I value in a founder is going to be different than what one of my partner's values in a founder uh, but I think there is like an, an overarching kind of like a drive and ambition you see in someone qualities the way they communicate um the experience they're bringing to the table um and that's where the filter really comes in and then you then you get to like kind of the checklist of things okay like you know, is there proprietary technology? Um, Is the market is the TAM big enough? Or if or if they're starting with more of like a a smaller TAM, is there expansion? You know, what are the competitive sets? Are there a bunch of really well funded competitors or, you know, bigger um, companies in the space? What's the revenue model going to be? So all that stuff comes. But I think the like the art piece of identifying the founder is is the most important.
1: And so you have a, that 30-second gut, and that's probably because you've, like you said, you've done so many reps that you kind of can tell with someone the way that they're talking to you, maybe how clear their vision is, how they're presenting, how good their sales skills are, do they believe in the vision? What are the, what do you think are the, the maybe the, the things that you, you know, obviously it's a natural feeling, it's a gut feeling, but what do you think it is behind that that's built into the gut, right, of saying this is the right person?
0: For me or or that or like the traits that they have
1: I think for you well, for you, of what the traits that they have, like what can you tell in that thirty seconds, even though it's a gut feeling,
0: yeah, yeah, so I think it's it's how like comfortable someone is in their skin, and like um, and yeah, like you can get people who are like you can tell that they're like you know really well qualified in a lot of ways, but they don't come across with that like. Kind of commanding presence and and not that that person can't be successful I mean, i'm sure there's lots of those types of people that are to be that are successful but to to start a company you have to be like a little bit arrogant a little bit crazy like yeah. but also yeah, like but also grounded and down to earth like you know like you need like this kind of perfect mix of all those different traits and if you and if you lean a little too heavy into any of those it like puts the whole thing a lot a little bit off kilter and i think that that sense of like this is someone who like you know, knows what they're talking about, commands a room, um, but isn't over. You know, does, isn't over salesy or overconfident, or comes across as arrogant. Um, I think that's what you can kind of get in those first thirty seconds, and then like, then you start to peel the on- onion and discover more about them. Um, but you just kind of, it's like that's why it's so it's such a quick like discovery. It's almost like how someone sits in their chair, right? Like. You know are they like too upright are they slouched like yeah like that's why it's like a very quick read it's it's not the only thing but i would say like at least with the investments that i've gone all the way through and we've invested in like that initial gut has been there um and then sometimes the initial guts there and then we pass for other reasons but um...
1: you're you're looking for that crazy well put together person
0: yeah Yeah, but like it comes and it also comes in different Formats like I'm thinking um, what well, we were just off before the show started talking about Urban Sky. Um, Andrew, the CEO of Urban Sky, is he's a business person. He's not a tech person, but he is he he has that like really comfortable in his own skin. Really knows what he's talking about, but really personable. Like you could just imagine him in a sales meeting, just like absolutely crushing it. Um, and then another investment I did right, actually right before Bird's, um, before Urban Sky is a company called BirdStop, and the founder there. It's a it's a drone company, but the founder there is a data scientist out of out of Google, highly technical, and he's much more reserved and doesn't have that kind of boisterous, bubbly. Personality like Andrew, but he also you can tell he's he knows what he's talking about. He's very comfortable. He commands a room, but like it's not the same energy. So it's not like a cookie. Cutter, okay. It's not a cookie cutter like persona. um It's like it, it can translate between different. Like personalities and and types, technical, non technical, like whatever it might be. Obviously, like you know, we're all snowflakes, so everyone's an individual. Um, but that's why it's like an an essence more than anything else. This is, this is getting a little bit too like uh, philosophical.
1: But um, no, it's true. And then you know, th- th- I guess the second part of that is, are you looking for them to be balanced by someone else on their team? Then maybe it's not like that, right? Yeah. So if they're a little quieter, you're looking for the salesperson.
0: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So. So in the Urban Sky example, um Andrew's co-founder is Jared, who is, like, really highly technical. I mean, you cannot find a person that knows more about stratospheric balloons than than Jared. Um, And so they are a great, like, yin and yang, Uh, although Jared actually has a lot of those um, more personable traits, too. Keith at Birdstop is actually a solo founder. Um, And so, but he's at a different stage of his business that was a pre-seed deal so the idea there was like actually having more of a focus on the tech at that stage is more important because you're just kind of starting to experiment with the um with the commercial side um i do think and keith knows this so if he listens to this i don't think he'll be offended that like eventually <laughs> he does need to bring on that kind of counterpart um but yeah. for the stage of the business it, we were he has he has what is the harder thing to get which is the like deeply technical like kind of skill set um and so we felt comfortable. Doing it without him having that person in place at that exact moment,
1: and the and the best probably have awareness that they need to bring that on at some point, even if it's not now. So you you mentioned a few different companies, you know, from drones uh, to a satellite company. You've also invested in obviously Albert Albert's shoe company. Like you guys have done a pretty broad spectrum of investments. So the the question that I have on that is. How do you become an expert in so many things, right? To, to in order to be able to to make that decision, that's not just purely off the founder.
0: Yeah, so we're not. I guess is the short answer. You can't be right. You can't be an expert in all of these different <laughs> things. Generalist yeah. investors, like we just, you're you're not. You're not going to be. You shouldn't pretend to be. Uh, that's not. That's not like the purpose of a generalist investor. Um, That being said, are there some things that we know better than others? Yes, of course. Um, So obviously, I mean, you mentioned Allbirds. We did a lot of kind of the early direct-to-consumer brand deals um, and specifically Ben Lear, who's a a managing partner here, um, did a lot of those deals. Like Ben knows consumer like the back of his hand. um, And so like, you know, if there is something consumer we rely very heavily on him and his, ex- and his expertise. Um, and then there's things like, you know, um, I've done more like vertical marketplaces and vertical SaaS and highly regulated industries. Um, I'm also known for like, quote unquote, weird ones, um, which I guess maybe urban sky. and <laughs>
1: <laughs> Anything that's weird that gets pushed to you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my other partners it, is, you know, kind of a digital health, expert. Um, So, so there are like little like pockets of knowledge that within the team that we can that we can rely on. Um, But again, like we are, we are here to back people. And so it's almost doesn't matter what the company does, Uh, or not that we don't care, of course, we care. But um, when you find the right,
1: it's so early stage
0: yeah exactly and um what you're looking for is like a founder like the founder should be bringing a lot of that like you know that's why we look for something called founder market fit um so we're looking for a founder that comes out of uh, you know either was a previous job or a personal experience that they had it's like you or a passion project whatever it might be but like the founder needs to bring that kind of domain expertise um and um but for us like i said like we are really good at picking people and so like just by being good like people pickers it's kind of like the rest works itself out because you know startup companies have to pivot you know both in big big ways and in small like for example probably one of the most successful companies in our portfolio a company called zipline um, which is a a, a fixed wing drone delivery company, which started with blood deliveries in Africa and now is coming to the US and and doing um yeah, and they're partnering with Walmart and um you know, doing like super my like micro deliveries. Um and they've raised a lot of money, they're super, super successful. But they start when we invested, um they were a company called Remotive and they were making a robot for kids. Um and you know, I'm sure maybe that company could have been successful, but I think Zipline is obviously going to be much more impactful and a much bigger business. Um, and and you know, but we're very very lucky that that founder was able to navigate that and, and pivot. So like, I think when we look back at our track record and our most successful companies, the the one common thread is it was the right person. Um, you know, and and I think as a as a VC especially in a slower market or a down market, you can get very caught up in the minutia of like, um, you know, is the market big enough? Is that the right go-to-market strategy? Um, You know, is the product fully built? And like, um, at the end of the day, we're supposed to be optimists. And so, um, you know, you have to come at it with a lot of of optimism. So that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. And I think that's, like the common thing between all those of those businesses. And then we also have a very vast network, um, both of our portfolio. So we rely a lot on our portfolio founders to help us uh, diligence companies, but then also outside the portfolio. Um, you know, It's actually funny, I was looking at a a company in like the motocross space for like enthusiasts of motocross. And I asked the team, I was like, I don't know. I need to talk to someone that really knows motocross. And I think three different people were like, oh, my cousin, cousin you know, semi pro like motocross person. And I was able to get all this feedback. So I think you'd be really surprised, like how deep you like, just, you know, the network, the network of the team goes.
1: And it seems like maybe that's something that you've done really well is is build your network. Is that one of the main sourcing strategies? Is it really just comes down to network and getting past deals on? Okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, you know, I think there's there's two kind of buckets of network. There is like table stake network, which is like you know, just a network that everyone has to have. And that that mainly is other investors, right? So we all know each other. We're all, some of us are personal friends or friendly. We do business together, especially at the seed stage, you might have, you know, two or three different funds in your round. So we can be really collaborative, which is something that I actually love about, about doing seed stage investing. Um, and, um, so that's, but you know, that's, you have to just assume that if you are a VC, you have that network and you're growing that network, network all the time. Uh, and then there's proprietary networks. Um, and those are networks that are proprietary to you as an individual, um, investor. And those can come from, you know, people you went to school with, maybe you rely on, especially as an early investor and you're trying to like, just figure out like, how do I start? Like, you know, who do you hang out with? Where did you go to school? Like, how can you like, kind of. Um, start like unraveling, pulling on the thread of people you know and who they could introduce you to, and 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 so on and so forth. And then, as you become a more established investor, it becomes very much so the founders that you've invested in. So, like you know, uh, most of the best companies we see are are actually our founders sending us their their friends and people they know that are starting companies. Yeah, so
1: founders, no founders, and that probably becomes a good tell for you who it's coming from. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, of course. If one of my best founders said, "I love this person," I think they're a killer. I'm going to take that like pretty seriously. Uh, And then you see people that come out of our our later stage portfolio companies. Um, You know, so so like that. That's that's starting to happen, especially as you know, a lot of our portfolio starts to get more mature. but but yeah, it, you know this is a this is a network game, and it's honestly something you can't like take your your foot off the gas on, even as you become more senior. It becomes a little bit more passive because you kind of have your established network. But even for myself, like I'm, I'm making um, a goal this year to connect with a lot of new a lot of new folks, especially during COVID when we were working from home. Like the Zoom networking just got really old really fast. But now that you know, yeah yeah, so now but now that I mean. We're really back in person. We can have host people at our office. Um, you know, I'm I'm trying to make sure I'm not just like resting on my on my laurel. Yeah.
1: What are the you know uh, you mentioned a few things of the, that the founders maybe have done right. The ones that you, you and your firm has an incredible you know pedigree of companies that have been successful. Zipline being one example. Obviously, all birds you could, you could go on and on. Uh, in addition to the intro, but are there one or two things that you look at from those founders that you said? that's the common trait between those founders. They, they, whatever that, whatever that is, like, what, is there a common thing that you see in most of those that they did?
0: You know, I think, Tenacity comes to mind. Um, there's a lot of roadblocks, big and small, constant. I think as a founder, um, so like you just have to like be able to run, th- you know, willing and able to run through walls and and you know not get exhausted. And it's an exhausting job, and and keep your eye on like the ultimate prize and stay motivated in that way. Um, I think hiring is a huge one. Um, you know, I think, you know, obviously, especially as a company scales, the founder can't do everything. So you need to surround yourself with the right with the right people. Um, I actually think kind of hiring um, more senior people for the stage of your company um, is is a lot uh, something that a lot of our most successful founders have done. So kind of that forward thinking, like, hey, this person might have a little muscle for where we're at now. But in the next, you know, six to twelve months, we're going to be there, and this person can start building the, their their own team and the processes that we need to scale. Um, so, you know, I think a founder's job um, post is, post probably like Series A, but maybe even before, or is two things: hiring and fundraising. Like, hire the right people, and don't don't run out of money. Would <laughs> be like like those are like the two things. And I do think that fundraising is an incredibly important skill for a founder to have. Um, you know, I we have a lot of amazing founders um over the years who just weren't great fundraisers. And maybe they had a great technology or a great company, but if you can't get that next round of funding, like that's gonna kill your company. And it's a whole separate kind of skill set. Um again, another kind of like an innate one, but one that also can be taught and learned. Um so being a good fundraiser, um, which I think kind of goes alongside with hiring, because there's a lot of similar kind of things you need to do there. Um, and then, you know, I think financial fitness, which is not something honestly that we talked about that much. Um, in the earlier years. Um, but I think, you know, in this, this market downturn, and, um, you know, you got to see who was swimming without their swimsuit on or whatever that saying is when the when the water went out. got see who was swimming naked, like, you know, there, as a founder, your job is to completely understand your business, like 360 degrees and all the levers you can pull both like to turn on the gas and turn it off. And I think there are a lot of founders and and you can't really fault them. Like, you know, most founders are not CFOs or, you know, like didn't come out of banking necessarily. Um, And there tend to be more kind of creative types. Um, But, um, you know, I think those are the founders that kind of found themselves in in trouble the last, um, this last cycle.
1: This last cycle, it's been interesting to see how some have responded to it. You know, obviously there's been some that have made, most that have made cuts, which were probably needed across the board. And then some that raise a little additional capital, even though there's a little more dilution, just in case this lasted longer. You know, they had a lot of money in the bank, but they're like, I don't know how long this is gonna last. So why not take on a little bit more dilution and you know make sure I've got six more months of runway if this lasts two years?
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. Um like, I think you need to be very far-sighted as a founder and the valuation question tends to be a nearsighted one. Um, and I think at the end of the day, whether you own, you know, 22% or 20% of your multi-billion dollar company, you're not going to look back. Yeah, you're going to be okay. You're not going to look back and be it's like, be dude, okay. if I had only raised my seed round <laughs> yeah. at a 15 and not a 10, like, you know, I- the,
1: the crazy ones may still be mad about that 2%, but yeah, they'll be fine.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like at the end of the day, like you have to do what's right for the company for the long run and not not for the short run. And I think the the best founders understand that.
1: I'm sure during this period, you know, you were advising a lot of startups on what they should be doing, probably a lot of hard conversations. I wanna talk I wanna dive a little deeper into, you know, the VC relationship with founders, how founders should leverage, you know, their board the best and really you know VCs obviously it's it's become maybe a little bit of a joke in the in the community of VCs add value, right? So um in talking about that, what, what are the ways that obviously your firm has a lot of experience, what are the ways that you try to add value to your portfolio companies once you've invested? What do you see your role as in helping them?
0: Um yeah, so we are not here to run your company. That that's for sure. You wouldn't want us to, nor do we want to. Um, and and again, going back to like you know investing in the right in the right people. Like we trust that you are gonna you know run the day to day correctly. Like that's you know that's a given. So I think there are some VCs that can get a little bit too kind of heavy handed both with, with their companies. Um, and I don't think that's the right approach. Nor is the like hey just call me if you need something approach approach either. So I think
1: they're they're purely capital they make the investment you never see them again yeah
0: yeah exactly exactly and there's a lot of investors that sit in that bucket and and there's a place for them as well i think we sit like pretty squarely in the middle where you know we're talking to you on a regular basis i mean most of my founders i text with on a daily or weekly basis we just that's the kind of relationship we have it's not forced it's not me saying to them hey give me the update on xyz it's it's just like a natural conversation that happens. Them asking me things, me me asking them things, me sending them things I saw in the news or the press or a little insight that I learned from another portfolio company. Um, and so that's like kind of just the natural kind of relationship you have and you become friends. You become like actual real friends and you care about each other and, and all of that. Um, so we, the number one thing we ask for from our companies is is open communication um, and, and good communication. Doesn't mean you have to be pinging us every two seconds, but we, what what happens with like good tra- good news travels fast and bad news travels not at all so like if you haven't heard from a company in a while it's it's very very often bad news and that's what we're trying to avoid because Problems can be solved if you catch them early and you address them early. It's when they snowball, and you know maybe a, a founder doesn't want to tell an investor some piece of bad news, which I totally understand. Like that's such a human response to want to like hide the lead on those sort of things. But like at, at this point, we've made the investment. Like we're on your cap table, we're on the same team. Like there's no there's no point in you know not divulging something to us because you think we might look badly on you. Like you know what what looks bad is if you just don't communicate and then we find out that there was this huge this huge problem. Um, and so it's really about communication. Um, and so, you know, at least a monthly kind of checkpoint, I would say. Um, and then obviously as you become later stage and you raise more capital and you get kind of more of a formal board, then, then it, we like talk to you a little bit less. Um, but, um, you know, as a generalist investor, I would say we, we, um, you know, we've invested in over 500 companies over the last decade. So we've seen a lot of, You know different reps and different kind of um issues that arise um and you know we that's what we can really help you with is like what are the general company building things that you can either do right or wrong and then we get really we can get much more tactful too like we have a platform team that can help with very specific kind of needs and then we can help with things like um you know helping you with your branding or with pricing or customer discovery um things like that um and then, and and let's say you're a healthcare company. We do have healthcare connections that we can help you with. Um, but you you probably have someone else in your cap table that can that can be even more impactful, kind of in the in those more um, like specific vertical things.
1: So interesting to me that going back to the communication piece, that's such a big sign. And unfortunately, it's a sign you only learn after you've made the investment. And I've talked to multiple VCs, and they all say the same thing. And I've made a couple small investments. Don't have near the reps uh, that you do. But it's it has been to that point. The ones that I have heard from are still alive. That I heard from every month, and th- it would be the worst news. Like I laid off ninety percent of the team. Here, here's how we're going to get through it. And this is awful. I'm going to help all those people get their, you know, get jobs in other places. And the ones that you, ne- you know, you never hear from, I check in and I'm like, and they're like, it's not going well. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 crazy.
0: Yeah 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 and and i do think you can learn that about a about a person kind of in the process of making the investment right like what are their follow-ups like are they sending you a note after with the follow-up materials you asked for or are you not hearing for them and having to follow up with them and say like hey you said you understand your financial model like just checking in like i think when you get those kind of red flags and this goes this goes both ways by the way for founders when they're going through a process with with vcs too i think you know you need to to vet the vc as much as the vc needs to vet you but like anytime there's like a communication breakdown from either side during an investment process it's probably not the right fit because like that's it's telling of how the relationship's going to be kind of on a go forward on forward basis um you know so but yeah communication is key
1: and you know obviously you see some of that communication as you're making that investment once you're you know whether you have a board seat or you know for founders that have obviously as they're growing they have boards how should they use their board, right? Because it's an interesting relationship. It's a little bit of, you know, support, but it's also a little bit of checks and balances. They invest a lot of money in this person, and they want to make sure that they get a return on that. What's the healthy balance in that relationship?
0: Yeah, I, we've been thinking a lot about this because obviously there was a lot of kind of board breakdowns um, that you saw from both, open both AI publicly and-, and, and not publicly. <laughs> um, so. I think our stance on this has changed actually a lot over the years. So when I first started at Lear Hippo like nine years ago, um we did not want early stage companies to have a board. Um the idea was like they're cumbersome, it's too much process, it's not appropriate for the stage of the company. You have to be much more nimble than that. Um you know, don't just don't have a board. And then um, and then some companies started forming boards anyways cuz other investors were asking for it, but we wouldn't take board seats. We were you know, we just said we have too many companies, we can't go to that many board meetings, whatever. We're not taking board seats. Then we started taking board observer seats, which is kind of our practice today. Um but i think with this last cycle like i really have understood the importance of of having a board even at the earliest stages when maybe you think like oh you know we're not ready for that or it's it's not it doesn't make sense and it's much more it's less about like reporting to your board. It's much more about taking the time to put the materials together to do a retrospective on what's happened in the last quarter or you know whatever the period of time that it has gone by, um, and and then what's the strategy on a go forward basis? Because otherwise, you just got you get bogged down in the day to day of being a founder and running your business. Like there's a thousand million things to do at any given time that you never create that space for yourself and your team to to really like do that that like thoughtful process and by the time you get to your board meeting i mean yeah you're going to get some you know advice or pushback from people that maybe are going to help you or not but that that's not where the value lies the value lies in in yourself going through that and taking the time
1: um so it, so it's more about the discipline of what you're doing the financial discipline as well as that giving yourself the time to think about what is the strategy and are we hitting that strategy are we doing the things we said we we're going to do
0: Absolutely, yeah. And having a plan. Again, these are early stage companies. No one is expecting you to get hit your, your plan on the nose or hit the exact numbers. But like, by having a plan and KPIs that you're tracking, then you know, like, okay, did we do what we said we were going to do? Why not? What do we need to fix? Maybe the KPIs were wrong. What are the KPIs we should be tracking? Like, you know, these aren't like sexy <laughs> things to be thinking about, but they're important. And otherwise, I have seen companies like, you know, a lot of companies in kind of the hype cycle, Raised without having to have any kind of kind of investor governance because they were that's what you were able to do and that you know but I don't think that that is actually good for companies um, and if you have if you pick the right investors and you have the right people around the table it's not going to be cumbersome okay yes it's it's a pain to put together a presentation like I, I get that but it shouldn't be cumbersome it should be a value add uh, value add experience and I think that companies you know try to put it off for too long the second thing I'll say because you know obviously with like open AI and all these really high profile things that you see in reality a board it's very very hard for and very very uncommon for a board to fire a founder and and i do get companies that are worried about that oh my god well if i form a board then you know they'll be able to fire me like in reality that like a it's like legally in most cases impossible open ai
1: and they have controlling interests most of the time the founder yeah
0: yeah. Yeah. And OpenAI had a very, you know, unique kind of um, structure that allowed that to happen. But, and and when you get to, okay, maybe much later stage companies, you're able to do that. But for a seed series A, series B company, like you're not going to get fired by your board. So you shouldn't come into it with that kind of mindset of like, um, you know, these people are out, are out for my head. Um, if anything, like why would a board want to fire you? Then they either have to run your business for you or replace you in some capacity. Like they want you to succeed. Um, and then you know obviously
1: and you should be concerned if they're already worried about getting fired probably
0: <laughs> uh, yeah but you know and you, and you have but you come from like you know I, I think one specific company came from like a very kind of traditional business background, where like that, you know, CEOs and got fired, like that was just, you know, they were very worried about that. But um, so I, I just I don't think that founders should be scared of, um, of their board if anything, but you do have to manage it. And it's important to manage it, both your board and your investors, because if you don't manage your investors, you're going to be getting um let's say you have 15 people on your cap table you're going to be getting 15 different people reaching out to you every single month asking for an update or or with some great idea for you or whatever it might be so like but uh, you as a founder like you need to put in boundaries and guardrails and be a clear communicator where you're not going to get all those one-offs that you have to then deal with um on on a daily basis
1: I I would feel for the founders and I think I'd be like this and I've talked to founders that have said the same thing where I'd be nervous how many questions, because you want to leverage your, your board and your investors' experience, right? You're like, Andrea knows this really well. I want to ask her. But at a certain point, you're like, I think I'm asking her too much, to the point where she may think I don't know anything, right? And and I've had founders tell me, like, if, if their investors saw their search history, they probably would not have a job, right? And they're just figuring it out. So there, there's probably a healthy balance of, you know, you want to make sure that that founder feels like they can go to you for anything but it's probably difficult for them to go to you for too much because you may start to lose confidence in them.
0: Yeah, yeah, like, totally. But I don't think a founder should worry about that. Like, yeah. you no. Know, There's that, bigger
1: problems to worry about.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and your investors should be happy to help you. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they really should be. And And again, at the same time, like, you know, they're, they're, they're on your cap table. Like the deal is done. So even if they lose confidence in you, they're like, what are they going to do about it? Like, you know, (laughs) you might as well leverage them to the, to your best. Now, like, you know, you shouldn't rely, like, like I said in the beginning or a little while ago, like we're not there to run your company for you. So if you're asking someone like,
1: so when you, when you make that investment, like as soon as it's done, is your first step just, Hey, it's not, here's what you should do or, or whatever. It's how can I help? Like, where do you need help right away? Is that kind of your first step?
0: Yeah, exactly. So we actually have like a a formal onboarding process. This is also something that's somewhat new for us, um, where, um, again, looking back at our portfolio over the years, like where do things go wrong when the expectations are not, um, set from like the beginning or where the groundwork isn't kind of put in. So, um, you know, we used to kind of do an investment and then you would just have like a call with the company and say, okay, like, you know, congratulations, the deal closed. How can we help blah, 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 that that's great to a certain degree. But what we do now is take companies through it's a, like a half day programming. Um, and it's, it's all about like, here are the expectations here's like the foundation that you need to lay both in terms of like the financial side of things, business milestones. There's a lot about kind of invest, you know, managing investors and board on there. Um, Here's what we're expecting from you. Um, Here's how you can leverage us. Here are the resources that are available to you. Um, We spent a lot of time kind of going through kind of, you know, where the company's at and initial strategy during that. Um, But um, I think that really like, you know, this is this, this is probably a year that we've been doing this now. Um, so it's probably like probably 10 to 15 companies that have gone through this process. So I guess, you know, a little more time we'll know, like, does it really make a difference? But I do think it sets you up for success with your investor. And, and as a founder, you know, you don't have to wait for your investor to offer you something like that. Most investors don't, to be honest, like, I think it's kind of not something that most firms do. Um, so if you can, like, you can you could ask for something like that. You know, you can you can request to sit down with them and and do that sort of thing. And I think setting that from the very beginning is is extremely important.
1: Let's um, you know, we do probably five or so minutes left. I do want to talk to you about time management. I'm I'm really interested in time management because everyone has the same amount of hours in the day, right? But some people clearly use it so much better. And when you look at a year, five year, ten year span, how are you managing so many things? you know, between sourcing deals, helping companies, there's fires every single day. Have you found certain strategies that have really helped you manage your time or habits that you'd point to?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously I could be I could be better at it. Um, um I I kind of like live and breathe in my inbox. Um so I don't have any like great, you know, use this tool kind kind of hacks. I have email is like it for me. Um Um, I do something at night that I learned from a a doctor who specializes in sleep called like my, the power down hour. Um, and so it's like the last hour before you go to bed, um, and you spend 20 minutes, um, um, like doing anything that's going to stress you out, whether that's like your last few emails, like for me with my kids, sometimes that's like, oh shoot, I didn't have time today to do that school form. Um, you know, walking your dog, whatever it might be. get it off your plate yeah for 20 minutes and 20 minutes you spend on hygiene so whether you want to take a bath or spend more time on um you know your your face routine whatever it is 20 minutes of hygiene and then 20 minutes of like reading a book um or meditating um or whatever it might be and and that has really helped me um both with sleep which was something i was struggling with given kind of you know like over you know stress and all that um, but it, it's a great way to kind of like, you know, put, your mind's a, just put running. a period on the yeah. end of the day. <laughs> like, um, you know,
1: yeah. And that was your struggle. It was more the end of the day than it was setting up the day.
0: Yeah, during the day, you know, you're going a million miles per hour. Uh, you know, I, I my job is mostly meetings, so you know, it's typically like back to back, to back to back meetings. And then I just try to create space for myself when I can. Um, you know, with this at the end of the day, or whether it's reserving an hour in the morning for exercise or or whatever it is. But I do think you have to be protective of your own time, and I think that's especially true, even more so true. Hundred times more so true for founders because you're going to be getting pulled in a hundred different directions. You have employees, you have investors, you have customers. Most of, most importantly, you have customers. You have consumers who use your um, um, you know use your product. Um, so um, you just have to create that space for yourself in terms of like how to you know kind of more tactful tools and stuff. I I, I think I'm just like everyone else who's just trying to get by. Yeah. yeah
1: just try to figure it out. Well, as we start to wrap, what is the the best advice that you've ever received?
0: It actually was from Kenny Lear, who is one of the founding managing partners here. Um he this is before way before I worked at Lear, actually when I was getting the job at Thomson Reuters. Um I remember I was at J Crew buying my new uh workwear. <laughs> uh, which was like we said at the very beginning was, was pantsuit. Yeah. You know, he was like, Oh, where are you? What are you doing? I was like, Oh, I'm shopping for work clothes. And he said, you should never get a job where you have to change your wardrobe. He's like, you know, like it's, it, you, you need to work somewhere where you can be like authentically yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so, I love so, that. and, and I was like, oh.
1: that eliminates so many jobs. <laughs> no, but it, I love that advice.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, and it was like that really resonated for me, and I, and I really saw it come to fruition when I went from the corporate job to the to the investing job because all of a sudden I was like, oh wait, like I didn't notice what people were wearing, and it was so different than what I was wearing, and and more so than that, it was people who were like you know were, were very comfortable in their own skin and and all that. Yeah,
1: it's about being yourself. A job where you can be yourself. Uh, what about a favorite book? Do you have a favorite book that you'd recommend?
0: Not really. I wish I, I'm a fiction reader. I like to use it as escapism. Um, and so I, you know, I read, I read mostly novels. I'm reading one now. Um, it's called Covenant of Water, which is really good, but it is like 800 pages long. Um, I'm like in the last 20 pages it's right now, it and yeah. it's taken me taken me a while to to get there. But it is it's a really beautiful book about um like a multi generational family in in India. Um, so I would recommend that. But I don't have anything from a business perspective besides the kind of yeah.
1: Oh, that's great. That, no, that's maybe even a better recommendation. Okay, final question. You're starting over Today's your first day as a venture capitalist. What are you going to do? What's the number one thing you're going to do this year?
0: Oh, I'm, I'm gonna network my butt off. <laughs> I guess, especially if I was if I was starting in VC today, um, that that's what I would do. I would go and meet as many people as possible, build my network, um, and I think like this now is the time to do it um, in, in in early stage investing.
1: Amazing, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that would love to get in touch with you. Speaking of networking, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I live in my email. So I'm andrea at learhippo.com. And yeah, anyone can reach out to me and would love to hear from people.
1: Amazing. Andrea, thanks for spending the time and uh, sharing all your insights and excited to see and all the companies that you're invested in now. And maybe we'll talk in a few years and see how they're doing.
0: Yeah, that'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, Thanks so much.